The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, Market Watch Edition. I'm Nathan Vardy, Managing Editor for Enterprise at Market Watch. Today with me is Sandra Gerber, CEO of Hudson Bay Capital Management, the incredibly well-respected multi-manager hedge fund firm that oversees $15 billion. Sander is also the co-author of a recent article published in the Journal of Portfolio Management, in which he teamed up with Nobel Prize winner, Harry Markowitz. Welcome, Sander. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, great pleasure to be here, and thanks for the uh, accolades. Um, Ukraine, inflation, uh, there's a lot going on today, and I want to get a sense of it from your seat. But first, I would like to talk to you about your work with Harry Markowitz on the Gerber Statistic, which is named after you. What is the Gerber Statistic, and can you explain how it could be relevant to everyday investors? Well, Nathan, working with Harry um, uh, was really a great honor. Uh, as you know, he won the Nobel Prize for Modern Portfolio Theory. And when he initially uh, wrote his paper in 1952, he said that to include correlation in mean variance optimization, which was the key for which he won the Nobel Prize. In other words, when you construct a portfolio, you should look at the expected return of the asset. You should look at the volatility of the return of the asset. And then the third leg of the stool is you should look at how does the asset correlate with the other assets. That had always troubled Harry since 1952. In his original paper, he wrote that that should be determined by the judgment of practical men. But what happened was as computing power increased in the 1960s, people said, oh, there's a statistic row and we can data mine historically to produce this correlation statistic. And so, Modern portfolio theory was misimplemented. It was implemented not based on a forward-looking analyst determining the correlation. It was implemented looking backwards at what historical correlation is. Now, I began my career as a floor trader, uh, trading equity options on the Amex. And I knew that in securities prices, there's a lot of noise. Not every trade conveys information. And also I knew from studying correlation on movements that historical correlation has no basis for future correlation. So in other words, the entire third leg stool that Harry won the Nobel Prize for was implemented wrongly because it was using historical correlation, which has no basis for future correlation. And so that was really the start of our collaboration. And it was that initial agreement I was walking on the beach with Harry and, you know, I flew out. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm a nobody. He's the Nobel Prize winner. I flew out to San Diego and I said, you know, Harry, I, I, I don't think historical correlation should be used to predict future correlation. And he said to me, you're right. And I was like, I thought 
maybe I didn't hear right because of the waves or, you know, I said, no, no, Harry, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. I, I don't think that historical correlation should be used to predict future correlation. And he said, you're absolutely right. And so the Gerber statistic I had developed internally to Hudson Bay. And the Gerber statistic um, is a rank order statistic, meaning that we, the first step is we threshold. So we say that if the data doesn't move by a significant amount, then we don't get causation from the data. In other words, if the S&P moves by 0.1%, it doesn't communicate information because the S&P had such a small movement. Mm -hmm. So we're saying we will ignore all data sets when the S&P moves by less than 10 basis points. And then if the S&P moves by more than 10 basis points, we're going to count how many times does it move with the asset, how many times does it move against the asset. And by creating the statistic this way, you're filtering out the noise, you're focusing on relevance, but because uh, securities prices, this is not, security prices doesn't follow natural law. It follows you know, behavioral um, economics. So you can't always get the exact same effect for the same cause. It's going to be it's going to be within a region, and so by not being too precise, but by finding a range, we're actually able to be more precise overall. And so uh, Harry and I were published in last month's journal, Portfolio Management, uh, <clears throat> on the implementation of the Gerber statistic within modern portfolio theory, which gives you more reward with less risk. Does that mean, is the implication, Sander, that, that maybe uh, some investors were not as diversified as they thought or not adequately diversified? And then what, why should people even be diversified? Well, you know, diversification is the only free lunch. One of the main things that I, I learned um, studying business was diversification only occurs if you have independent variables. And if you have independent variables, then you can reduce risk with the same amount of reward. Now, if your diversification is based on history, you're saying the future is going to look like history. Mm -hmm. And by definition, that is not the case. So by definition, you don't have the diversification you thought you had if you're using the historical to to predict the future. Now, <clears throat> I think particularly now at this uh, point in the markets, there, there needs to be a re-evaluation of valuation. I think that for most people out there, they need to think about cause and effect investing. In other words, a lot of people might get money in their uh, IRA and say, well, I want to put some in <clears throat> large cap stocks, some in small cap stocks, some in, uh, you know, international stocks, some in private equity, some in hedge funds. It's not enough to have different labels on these investments. You really have to think about what is the cause of the appreciation of these asset classes. And then you have to think about what will the effect be 
if the causation changes. Mm. That's interesting. Um, let's talk about uh, the what's going on in the economy and the market today. Um, consumer inflation is measured by the CPI is up 7.9% year over year. Uh, you run a large market neutral strategy. Uh, what is your view on inflation going forward? And um, how do you think everyday investors can think about this risk? These are big questions. And you combine the two together. What do I think about it and what can investors do? So we've lost any kind of risk management around central bank policy. And in large part, that was because central bankers adopted modern monetary theory, which states that you can print money until there's inflation. And so around the world, we printed money in the Western world. And there was the thought that we're not gonna have inflation. There's robotics, there's global trade. Then we went through the pandemic, we printed even more money. Then there were supply chain bottlenecks and people thought, well, this is temporary because usually the recursive aspect of inflation, is, inflation is not like a one-time bump. Inflation is a change of expectations that prices will continually cycle higher. And usually that's a wage price cycle. So labor demands higher wages. <clears throat> Companies now have to charge more because their expenses go up. Tight labor demands more wages. <clears throat> it's a spiral thing. And, and many economists thought that that is perhaps the only driver of ongoing continuous inflation. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So there was a feeling until recently, and even recently, that, that this is supply chain disruption, you know, commodity price inputs going up, that this is not going to be persistent or ongoing. I, my expectation is that that's not the case. And it started with our relations with China, where we have now embarked uh, during the Trump administration and under the Biden administration into a world of deglobalization. For the last several decades, we have been experiencing more globalization, which has meant, frankly, that in the heartland of America, where I'm from, Michigan, Now we're experiencing a reverse. And I think that what's happening in the Ukraine is just accelerating. Um, I want to remind our, our readers to uh, please submit uh, questions uh, for Sander. And uh, we have a few already. Uh, I have one from Carson Sander. Um, do you see REITs or utilities as good hedges against uh, market volatility? I think that with the probability of inflation, you want to invest in companies that have pricing power. So the extent that your investments have pricing power, which could be the case in, you know, certain REITs or certain utilities, I think they should be okay. Um, Sander, it seems to me, uh, we talked about inflation a little, that the Fed is, is today is in a tough position where they can either raise rates to contain it uh, but that would probably be too too high for the markets and the economy. So that it, to me, the way I view it is they could choose either inflation or growth. Uh, what direction do you think the Fed will, will take and, and or do you think they might choose some sort of middle path? 
I think the big question is what is the Fed's independence from the political um, calculus? And, and that you know, has been a, a problem going back many decades. And I'm not really clear. I'm not clear if we're gonna go through a Volcker type regime or even if the Fed has the capability of, of doing something like that in, in today's day and age. So I think the Fed has to raise rates, but the dislocation from raising rates, you know, could be significant. A lot of industries are dependent on low cost of capital. A lot of asset prices are dependent upon low financing rates. If we increase the cost of financing, that could have serious negative impact on many asset prices. Um Sander, I have a question here from Todd. He wants to know, uh, he wants to ask a big geopolitical question uh, about the idea of China uh, perhaps invading Taiwan, how that would impact markets, um, and how do you, do you think about this as a, as a portfolio risk? There are, there are a number of policy analysts that have raised this um, as a serious possibility. I, I disagree with that. I think that China is looking closely to see how Russia fares in Ukraine. I think that the united front uh, against Russia in the case of Ukraine is giving China significant pause about them um, even thinking about going to Taiwan. So at the same time, the rhetoric uh, out of China is, you know, America, you know, respect the, the one country policy and do not recognize Taiwan. I think China would not want the economic fallback. You know, the Chinese are have done an excellent job of raising the standard of living in their country through a completely different political system that I personally would not want to live in. Um, and they are driven to grow their economy. So to the extent that global trade was cut off to China, which I pretty sure would happen if they attack Taiwan. Um, I just think that's enough of a deterrent. Got it. Sand, it's really been an incredible year in the stock market. Um, we've had a really amazing run here in the short term. And we're right now, incredibly, we're, we're really not that far off from the all-time highs on the S&P. Um, What's your view of this latest move? Is, is this uh, kind of a bear market bounce in, in your view, or um, is something something else going on here? I think that the the market's assuming a resolution to the Ukraine crisis. I think the, the market is always optimistic. In, in my experience, I've been doing this since 1991, the market does not predict macro events well. Mm -hmm. It's a very poor predictor of macro events in the market. I think always assume, assumes that they will find a solution. Um, I personally think it is highly likely that they will come to some kind of resolution um, because it's in no one's interest to continue this. It's not in Putin's interest. Uh, it's not in the Ukrainian's interest. It's not in Europe's interest. So because I think there's a significant cost to all the parties of an ongoing crisis, um, I think they're going to reach some kind of settlement. So. You know, the question of bear market bounce, you know, that's that's a, that's a nice term. Um, I think it reflects a sense that the Russian military can't topple the Ukrainian government. And so the resolution will be quicker. 
And so I think that's why the market has recovered a bit. Got it. Um, do you see wider implications? I mean, you kind of touched on these uh, coming out of this conflict. Um, you talked about globalization perhaps receding. Um, what does that look like from an economic and markets perspective? What, what does it mean for America? Well, I have to think that for America, uh, deglobalization will actually be good relative to other countries in the world. In other words, I think that we'll see a lot of supply chain manufacturing and production coming back to America, which means uh, jobs for Americans. And now that might be bad for the globe overall because globalization does increase efficiencies. But in terms of the working American, I think it'll be very positive for jobs to come back. Is that inflationary? I believe it is inflationary, yes. So mm -hmm. that's why I think the wage price spiral is truly gonna happen um, as, as we bring back onshore jobs. There was some news a couple of weeks ago uh, that uh, my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal probed about uh, Saudi Arabia perhaps um, pricing oil transactions and one. Um, do, do you think, an, you know, part of this uh, deglobalization and implication of this conflict is that there is a, a real threat to the dollar as a reserve currency? And what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that before the crisis, the Chinese were trying to get away from the dollar dependency or, or mitigate the dollar dependency. And uh, <clears throat> Russia, now that we've in part sort of weaponized the US dollar against Russia through sanctions, which have been frankly modest so far, I think that people have to worry that if they hold US government securities, that in the U.S. government decides that they're a bad country, that their holdings are deleted. And I think that has implications for the safety and security of uh, U.S. securities, which has an implication on whether or not the dollar should be the reserve currency of the world. The dollar is the reserve currency of the world. It's not going away so quickly, but the Saudis floating, and they floated this before, but the Saudis floating this, I think, is another kind of ping against the idea that the dollar as the uh, reserve currency. And there's a lot of reasons why countries would not want to be stuck to the dollar, because it gives us a lot of control over the global economy. Um, to shift gears a little bit, uh, but we, we started the conversation talking about uh, diversification and, and what that really means. Do you think the classic 60-40 portfolio is still relevant in this markets, or are we moving towards a different era? Yeah, I mean, the 60-40 portfolio was historically with bonds being much higher, and uh, I don't think it has relevance anymore. You know, when, when the when the 10 years trading, I think 240, something like that, um, you know, make 2.4%, 40% your portfolio when rates can go up a lot more than they go down. <clears throat> I think it'd be very unusual for the 10 year to go below zero. I mean, it brings up all, everything I studied in economics in the late eighties in college has been thrown out the window. 
Um, but if you look at upside downside calculus, despite the, the convexity of the bonds here, it just doesn't seem worth it to be uh, putting 40% of your portfolio in, in bonds that are yielding just 240 basis points. Uh, it's really incredible that we're sitting here uh, talking about different market risks and people, people have almost forgotten about the pandemic. Is that still an issue you're thinking about or it? Um, it's still an issue in China. And, and yeah, I think it still has an impact on, on the global economy. I think that we're still coming out of it. Um, uh, Omicron has delayed the has delayed the recovery, but we're in the tail end. We're in the tail end of it. And, and I think that I had always thought that at the tail end of the lockdowns, when people come out and life goes back to normal, that's when we'll see the impact of the money printing. Because you can print money to fill a gap. Mm -hmm. But when the money's in the system and it's sloshing around the system, and then real economic activity returns, that's when you see that there's, you see, can you print money or not print money? So I think that was going on before the Ukrainian crisis. And I think that's why we're seeing so much inflation. And I think the Ukraine crisis has just augmented that inflation. And then I think the Ukraine crisis has just augmented the deglobalization, which results in onshoring of jobs, which I think is also augmenting the inflation. So to me, all these things are pointing towards higher inflation. And the question is, what will the Fed do? Will they accept the economic dislocation it will be caused by raising rates, or will they just hope? And uh, that's hard. It's hard to it's hard to handicap politics. Uh, Sandra, I have a question from Nick. Uh, he says you may have touched on this, but given the actions of central banks around the world, are assets in a permanent elevated state, or are we likely to see a collapse in asset prices due to a collapse in confidence of major currencies, e.g., a flight to gold and other hard assets? Well, I mean, that's the trillion dollar question. I, I think that <clears throat> you can't print money forever. At some point, it's got to devalue the currency. And um, there's too many variables to, to, to get there. But I do think that fiat currencies um, have great challenges ahead. And it could be, sadly, that a totalitarian regime like China can protect the value of their currency more than uh, a social democracy. Because in a social democracy, the, the drive to be reelected will push monetary policy, which in the short term appears to plug holes, but in the long term makes, you know, devalues your currency. Uh, I have a question from Lee. Uh, what you've said today basically is an assertion that the past is overrated as a basis or a foundation with which to assess the future. If this is so, then what should the intelligent investor do or use to guide his investing? Is the best course simply to learn or concentrate on one sector of the market so as to be able to understand the things that shape the future? Is a macro approach doomed to failure? Well, first, it's a very intelligent question. And 
the the investing space is so varied there's people with all kinds of strategies that can make money but to assume that the past will be identical to the future is the same as the uh the monkey with the dartboard that the wall street journal had to you know pick stocks um i think that what you have to look at is cause and effect investing you got to look at what do you think the upcoming drivers are going to be of profitability and what will the effect of those drivers be and no person is expert across all investment products all industry sectors but that's what investing is investing is about bearing risk versus reward so you have to be comfortable enough that you understand the risk and confident enough that there will be adequate reward for the risk and if you change your frame of focus to comfort with the risk and confidence in the reward then you can change your calculus i think a good investor is opportunistic. In other words, an asset manager looks to deploy all the time. You give money to a mutual fund, they're supposed to deploy that money. They're not supposed to put it in cash. They're being paid to deploy the money. An investor is patient. An investor waits for the opportune time. An investor looks at the price levels and determines now is the time to act. Um, Hal has a couple questions here. Uh, is, is historic correlation entirely irrelevant even to help predict future correlation in my experience if correlation is between 0.9 to 1 and 0.1 to 0 it is relevant but anything between 0.1 and 0.9 is not relevant got it, got it. um how also would like your prognosis for the midterms uh its impacts on, on markets and of course, uh, do you have any thoughts on cryptocurrencies? Well, I'm a Republican, so it's not fair to comment on that. Um, cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, at first I was in the camp that a currency has value because of sovereign backing. And crypto doesn't have sovereign backing. But over the last year, I've come to a different understanding. The sovereign backing is the promise that the sovereign won't use its franking privilege, abuse its franking privilege to print more currency. So your confidence in the sovereign is that the, the sovereign will not abuse and print too much. The beauty of crypto is that it's defined by a computer model that's not guided by <coughs> political issues. So to a certain extent, crypto is a very interesting alternative source as a store of value. The problem is that what is an appropriate level? There's no intrinsic value to crypto except what it's worth, what people think it's worth. So in a way, it's like if you're to buy, you know, a Renoir, that Renoir, the painting could be exchanged as value but you don't really know what it's worth. So I think that it's created a lot of, um, I think the idea, which is, I believe a sound idea, notwithstanding the ability for cyber attacks and other nefarious things to happen. I think the idea is legitimate, but I think that 
ascertaining a stable value is very, very difficult. Now, it could be that as crypto becomes larger and larger and larger, that we won't have this significant volatility in the crypto markets, and then it could actually take over. But I, I think that's a long way off. Um, Steve wants to know about, uh, I mean, he's really asking about diversification. In this environment, is it, he's asking, is, is it best to buy ETFs versus individual stocks? He's looking at semiconductor <laughs> stocks. He feels like some of those companies are doing much better than others and that using a basket approach may not pan out. Uh, what Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, an ETF obviously is more diversified than buying a single stock. So right. if you want to make a bet on semis, yeah, it's better to buy an ETF or to, frankly, buy a basket. Um, it, you know, it's always better to have more names, but you, you have to, again, cause and effect in, the investing. You have to look at what's the cause. So if you have a particular name in the semis that has a particular event catalyst or change going on, it has a particular reason at that particular price level where you have comfort with the risk, and confidence with the outcome, then you know, bet on the individual stock. If you don't, then it's better to go with a basket or an ETF. Um, Sander, one feature of the last decade has been the overperformance of U.S. stocks uh, relative to global equities. Uh, do you think there's a risk of that reverses and that investors have to think about that? I think America is going to win versus the rest of the world. I think we're much stronger. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I said, I think bringing back uh, manufacturing capacity, the deglobalization, uh, although the deglobalization might cause consumer products to be more expensive, I think it's going to make America a lot stronger economically. Um, one other question broadly on the stock market. We had the longest bull market in history. It was interrupted briefly by the pandemic. Then stocks doubled, doubled again. Um, do you think we're entering a new era with inflation and the Fed tightening or, or can this continue? Yeah, I, I really do. I think that we are entering a new, you know, it's hard to predict a new era. Right. Um, but throughout this entire time frame has been characterized since uh, 1983 or 85, short-term rates have gone from 12% down to zero and have only recently started to bounce back up. So because I'm of the belief that you really can't have negative nominal rates, um, I think we've hit the zero bound and I think that the reversal of this could reverse a lot of the bull market. Um, so you're, you're bearish. Well, you know, Hudson Bay is an absolute return fund. Right. So Hudson Bay seeks to make money through skill in all market environments. Mm -hmm. Um, it could be that we'll have another last gasp because mm -hmm. the easy way out is always to print money. So to the extent that there's dislocation, I think the fed will keep printing and you can't predict when the bubble will burst. You can't. And um, so I, I try to maintain a neutral stance. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Angela has a question. Uh, what, what's your thought on the inverted uh, two and 10 year yield? Uh, and what other indicator would you look for uh, when you think about a possible recession? She's, she's answered. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the very best indicators of recession. Uh, I, I think it's worked every time, if not almost every time. Um, <clears throat> I think recession would be long overdue. You know, we skipped it because of the COVID relief. So I would think that we would be entering into recession. But, you know, again, I don't know if it's going to happen this year or next year. And a lot can happen between that. Um, Steve would like you to fast forward to the end of 2022. Do you think the biggest issue we will be facing will be inflation, recession, geopolitical risks, or something else? Well, that's going to depend on whether or not there's a resolution in the Ukraine crisis, which I think there will be. So I think the biggest issue is going to be inflation at the end of the year. If I'm right, there's a resolution. If there's not a resolution of the Ukraine crisis, the world looks very different, very different. But assuming there's a resolution, I think the biggest issue is going to be inflation and how to deal with it. Um, you know, I'm getting a couple questions that are similar here. I think I know what you're going to say, but Mark is going to make a statement that the Fed is clearly behind the curve in this cycle. Um, what do you think accounts for it? The pandemic, politics, um, what's, what's your view? I think the Fed was adverse to raising rates because inflation had been low for so long. Uh, there's an impact in economic activity. And most importantly, I think that they wrongly thought this was a supply chain shock, which would be temporary. And now that it's become clearer, I think, that um, wages are going up and there is tight labor now that you know, our workforce has, has regained very quickly. It's not as tight as it was before, but it's still very tight. Uh, people are demanding higher wages. I think now they understand that this is not just a temporary supply chain shock. And I think that's why they were behind the curve. Um, Angela also uh, wants to ask you about you know, how far behind the Fed is behind the curve. And um, do you think more, more than two 50 basis point hikes are needed this year? I, I think the Fed manages their hikes based upon the impact on the economy. So what do we need to slow the inflation? Yes, I think we need more than 250 basis points hikes. But I, I doubt that the Fed will do that because the disruption to the economy would be more severe than I think the, you know, the political calculus would allow. Got it. Um, well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thanks for being here, Sander. Uh, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. Uh, we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Barron's senior managing editor, Lauren Rublin, and healthcare industry reporter, Josh Nathan Kazis, discuss the outlook for healthcare stocks and the latest news on COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. Thank you again for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.